All right, Tyler, I have a kind of sensitive question for you. Okay. I'm a sensitive kind of guy, so. I figured. Okay, so have you ever been so kind of out of your mind that somebody else had to make decisions for you? Um, yeah, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that I had my tonsils removed after law school. So I was 20, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably 30 years old. Let me do the math on the numbers. Yeah, I think I was almost just turned 30. And I was coming out of general anesthesia. And um, have you ever seen those videos where people like videotape their kids after they've had their wisdom teeth taken out, right? (laughs) And they're saying all kinds of crazy things. I, there's not a video of this, but I had a similar experience and I only remember it because the nurses told me about it afterwards. But apparently as I was coming out of it, one of the nurses walked by and I stopped her. I was like, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, can you hold my hand? And so she stood next to my bed for a second and just held my hand. And then apparently I like brought her close and like whispered in her ear and said, can you please get me a cookie? <laughs> and she, and she, uh, she told me, no, she couldn't get me a cookie. So that's, I just wanted someone to hold my hand and bring me a cookie. That's like very sweet. <laughs> that's not what you're expecting the, the direction of that story to go? No, I mean, I'm not surprised. I'd like to think that when you're old and demented, you'll be like a sweet old and demented man. You know what? I read in a chart one time, uh, a case that we were consulting on that the patient was described as being pleasantly demented. And I yeah. thought, man, that is like life goals. Like I want to be kind <laughs> of out of it, but like nice to everybody. Pleasantly yeah. demented. Yeah. I love that. So you held her hand and you asked for a cookie. Man, I mean, if that had been recorded, it wouldn't have been. I bet it would be sweet. And I wish we had that recording. I, I've had that once. So I got my wisdom teeth taken out when I was older Um, also like in my late 20s, I think. And I have a vague memory of um, as I was, as the anesthesia was wearing off, I felt all the gauze in my mouth and I thought, oh, they're so dumb. They put it in the wrong place. So I took it all out of my mouth and Uh. put it on the other side of my mouth because I think I had seen the x-rays and the x-rays are reversed. And so in Uh. my mind, I was like, oh, they, they screwed up here. I'll help them. And, and so I was pulling out of this bloody gauze out of my mouth and sticking it on the other side. And my friend who had come to gather me after was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, don't worry. I'm, I'm helping. <laughs> yeah. I love those videos of teenagers confessing things as they're coming out of anesthesia. So. Thank goodness those didn't exist when we were teenagers. Yes, for sure. And by those, I mean like phones that can capture video. Yeah. Exactly. So today we're going to be talking about a case, which I actually think is in some ways a very familiar case of a patient who's lost capacity to make decisions for himself. And so we turn to his family to make decisions. And then unlike many of the cases that we deal with, the family makes some decisions that let's just say the ethicist has a very hard time agreeing with. And all that ensues when both the patient and their family are making decisions that the ethicist thinks really aren't in their best interest. Exactly. Like a lot of the cases that we're doing this season, the the haunting cases, this one takes a twist that I didn't expect and I don't think that anybody else is going to expect as, as well. 
Yeah, so get ready for a haunting and very interesting case. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stone. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We are pleased to have with us today a friend of the podcast, Kevin Dirksen. Kevin is the Senior Director for Ethics and the Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics at Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Devin. Really uh, glad to be here today. We're happy to have you, Kevin. So we asked you to come to us with a case and we actually have no idea what you're going to say. Um, sometimes we sort of ask the guests to prep us, and we, I think, forgot to do that. So it's going to be a wonderful surprise to us, as it will be to the listeners. So why don't you get us started with some background on the case? Yeah, happy to do that. And uh, I'm not going to uh, sort of be write, uh, reading a verbatim uh, about the case uh, for those uh, trained in uh, spiritual care and the like. Uh, but really, this is uh, hoping to be a little bit of a dialogue. So feel free to interrupt me along the way, uh, especially if any of my case details are fuzzy. But um, the case that I thought that uh, sort of uh, hits that bar of uh, haunting territory, we're not too far from Halloween, right? Uh, it uh, makes it uh, uh, sort of may go back uh, earlier in my career to a case that um, I sort of look back upon with both um, professionally some um, satisfaction in, but also um, a real sense of, um, I think when I talk to other ethicists around the country at conferences and the like, it's, uh, did I do a good enough job? Uh, was I enough for this patient, this family, this team? And um, this case certainly um, hits those, all those buttons for me. So um, was consulted about a case um, of a patient who uh, was recently medically um, uh, on disability um, for prolonged um, uh, cardiac history, um, the sort of uh, cardiac HMP read that he had a form of dilated um, uh, uh, cardiomyopathy, uh, non-ischemic form of cardiomyopathy that um, had progressively been worsening um, over the last few years to the point that um, he was followed pretty closely by an outpatient cardiologist um, who was really hopeful um, that at some point, some advanced heart failure therapies might be indicated uh, for his patient. And uh, it was at one sort of uh, one of the monthly uh, cardiology outpatient appointments that uh, he seemed a little bit more symptomatic uh, than before, uh, was short of breath, um, and uh, seemed a little bit more fatigued getting from the exam room back to um, the waiting room. And so uh, the clinic recommended that he head to the emergency room to be checked out, um, sort of with the sense of uh, anything that we can do symptomatically, um, but also maybe his heart failure had now crossed a critical threshold to maybe being a candidate for some of those advanced heart failure therapies that um, I had mentioned before. And so he, um, as a dutiful patient, went to the emergency room, showed up, 
um, and uh, was quickly evaluated by uh, the teaching service um, of that um, institution for uh, candidacy for admission. And they put in a, a, a consult to CARDS um, to sort of check out his heart function. And quickly they um, kicked it over to the cardiac transplant service who evaluated him and thought, you know, um, at this point he's meeting criteria to be listed um, for transplantation. Um, and summarily was added to the list, not high, mind you, but um, on the list, uh, notwithstanding. And so uh, sort of beginning a somewhat long um, hospital saga with twists and turns that involve uh, ethics consultation along the way. So by the time that we were called, uh, the patient had been admitted for a few weeks already, first um, on the cardiac floor, um, and then in uh, a unit specializing in the care of cardiothoracic patients. Um, who um, uh, at that point were uh, pretty sick um, and many of which were being evaluated or candidates for uh, transplantation. And so uh, not uh, even a month into this man's course, he found that um, he was no longer just walking into his cardiologist's appointment uh, to be evaluated, but had suffered um, uh, heart failure and required uh, getting a ventricular assist device. So initially a left ventricular assist device and uh, status post, um, as they say, um, in the hospital or after this procedure, um, he was not stabilizing and actually went back to the OR and had a second VAD placed, um, a right ventricular assist device. And so in a manner of just a few hours, he went from um, pretty stable on the floor to um, requiring two ventricular assist devices to support him. With that sort of elevation of his uh, clinical care needs, um, so too did his candidacy criteria jump up uh, to the point that he was then listed um, sort of UNOS criteria 1A, kind of top of the list, um, the sort of territory of next organ, fits your habitus and correct blood typing um, is sort of yours. And so prospects looked good um, for him to maybe get a heart transplant. It was okay. So let me interrupt for just a second. Yeah. So what's the timeline between him first being uh, noticed to be deteriorating kind of at that, at that initial consultation or that initial um, appointment that he was at for his outpatient cardiologist until he is sitting in the hospital with two, you know, two VADs in place and listed 1A status. Yeah, it's about three weeks time. Um, so they got him admitted pretty quickly after again, he went from that clinic appointment um, to the emergency room. They got him admitted and you know, he was cared for on the cardiac floor for a few weeks, but um, he did take a you know turn for the worst. His situation um, rapidly deteriorated after that. And so I believe it was about three weeks into his admission that he ended up with the um, double VAD uh, package, right? One on each. Uh, chamber of his heart. It's kind of incredible that they told him to go to the ED. I mean, it's not they they saw something and they it, and told him to do that. But good thing he did, right? Because sometimes you can kind of ignore that or say, "Gosh, I don't know. Maybe you want to come back later, or maybe you need to follow up with somebody." But probably a really good idea that they got him in to the ED right away. Yeah, I think that's really spot on, Devin. And also, it seemed to me that it was the case that this was sort of the plan all along. Um, they were sort of um, knowing that they didn't have a sort of uh, magic pill to sort of diarese him to a level that would achieve you know maximal flourishing out in the community. At some point, he would require some 
um, kind of clinically proverbial big guns, as it were. Um, and they were sort of waiting for the time that his condition worsened to be evaluated for transplant. So uh, good on not only that they were ready to refer him, but also that that was when his appointment was. I believe the way it was relayed to me, it was a regularly scheduled cardiology appointment, not, uh, hey, doc, I feel sick. Uh, you know, I want to see you. Um, so the timing all lined up for him to sort of be in the right place at the right time with his worsening heart failure. So, so far, so good. No ethical dilemmas yet, but I... I no, not, not yet. But, uh, you know, after that second VAD, um, uh, things kind of started getting pretty precarious um, from him. And uh, what occurred is, uh, I believe it was 48 to 72 hours later, um, he uh, actually was um, able to uh, come off of um, uh, sort of the sedation, was able to wake up um, and seem neurologically intact. And so all signs were good that this rapid um, clinical uh, deterioration was able to be salvaged with um, cardiology big guns, right? And so um, at that point, all good. And he was sort of sitting 1A on top of the list, waiting for an organ to uh, sort of come up. Um, but it was at that point that, like many patients that probably you've had ethics consults on um, in the past, that when you're in the hospital for the long for a long time in the ICU and have all these tubes and devices coming in and out of you, that you're sort of uh, prone to infections, right? And so it was um, at uh, a few days post-op from the VADs that he developed an infection, which uh, also affected his mental status. And he had those sort of dreaded few words of altered mental status then written um, in his progress note. Um, and it was at that point that he sort of became a different patient. Uh, the way it was relayed to me is this guy was everybody's friend, um, everybody's favorite patient. Um, was somebody who you just loved rounding on, um, was absolutely congenial, thanked all of his you know, care team members from the head doc to someone coming in and um, changing out the sharps containers. Um, but it was at that point he became much more combative, aggressive, and started to say things like, um, stop, stop, I'm done. So Kevin, let me, one of the most important things uh, for me when I'm doing clinical ethics consultations, particularly when we start talking about patients who have, you know, diminished decision-making capacity or altered mental status is to check in with the family, right? So kind of get a, an idea about who this guy was before he was sick. So tell us about his family, uh, if you can, who, who is in his, his care circle. Yeah, my recollection, and, and again, I'm having to go back a little bit for uh, this haunting case, but maybe for some of you, those uh, some of those details stick in pretty prominently. I recall that he was uh, divorced. Um, he um, had an extended family. Um, he um, had his um, a grandson who he was really excited to teach how to fish, um, but also um, some other close relations, you know, in a um, couple of sons, I believe, a daughter. Um, and some other family members. Um, so uh, he was pretty plugged in um, while he you know, wasn't married, actively partnered at that time. Um, he had a close um, uh, living family who uh, they were very supportive of his care. Um, and as you could have, you know, yoke it back to capacity, Tyler, um, they, they saw a change uh, when the team members, that really surprised them when sort of out of the blue, uh, he started uh, really sort of changing um, his tune, um, both before he was admitted uh, to even throughout the admission. He had kept that positive outlook, demeanor. He was going to get this heart transplant and get out on the lake and teach his uh, grandson how to fish. And so 
a kind of change um, in um, how he was engaging was uh, pretty marked for all involved, the family and the clinical team alike. Okay, so we're worried about his altered mental status. My guess is he's now really unpleasant to be around if you know he's more aggressive and he's saying he doesn't want anything done. Now we're concerned that we're giving him things that maybe he doesn't want and it's hard to know if it's because of his altered mental status or it's because he's changed his mind about all the care that he's receiving, which is also possible. So he's un yeah. yeah, and so yeah, and so looming was this question. Sorry to interrupt. Is uh, you know what do we do? Um, he's on you know he's got these couple of ads and you know other supportive uh, measures. Um, are we starting to get to the point where we're going to maybe have to transition this hoped for um, transplant candidate um, to uh, getting the palliative care team involved and thinking about what comes next? Um, but it was sort of before that um, kind of realization that um, his clinical status was uh, sort of uh, uh, tracking very closely to worsening clinical status. Um, so his you know, reasoning, his affect, his aggressiveness was tracking sort of worsening um, ability to control his own secretions and protect his airway. And so um, it was really in the setting of uh, the team needing to decide not do we de-escalate um, the level of care he's receiving, but do we put him back on the ventilator um, because uh, we need to uh, sort of rescue him, get some new um, antibiotics on board and um, uh, go from there. So uh, it was kind of this looming goals of care type situation, which way do we go? But then acutely, it's he's going to need to go on the vent. And do we do that or not to someone who's saying things um, now, like in the last few hours, I want to stop. No more. No more. Well, I don't know, Tyler. Are you, you going to force treatment? Always. <laughs> <laughs> Always. They don't know what's good for him. Got to, got to show him who's boss. Yeah, and so I think that, um, you know, the team was hoping to have some time to kind of figure this out, but uh, my pager went off pretty uh, pretty late. I was asleep, um, and it was from the uh, uh, attending physician sort of manning the, uh, the ICU that night saying, listen, um, he's worsened so bad, um, his suctioning um, requirements have gone from every few hours to every hour to we're having to sort of do um, pretty close to around the clock every 15 minutes suctioning. Oh, wow. This guy needs to go on the ventilator. Do we do it or do we not? Um, all speaking to a very groggy uh, clinical ethicist in the middle of the night. Those are always tough. I, 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 I like to tell people that there's no such thing as an emergency ethics consultation. Um, I don't know if that's actually true, but um, it, when the question is, do we intubate or do we not intubate? That is as close to an emergency ethics situation as, as we can uh, face, I think. And often, you know, it depends on what was the conversation beforehand, when before the person lost capacity. Yeah, and that's where, you know, they, if they were looking back to, well, um, you know, what did he say at a time of capacity that would guide us now? Um, it's sort of interesting, right? Do we look at the last few hours, not days, uh, not weeks, but last few hours where he had this change in mental status functioning um, and he started to, you know, indicate that he didn't want to continue? Or do we go back um, sort of before that change in mental status? And if that, if going back to before, uh, the case is pretty clear, uh, we should intubate him. He was doing absolutely everything possible uh, to get that life-saving um, heart transplant to be able to uh, get him out of the hospital, get his functioning up, uh, maybe not to go back to work fully, but at least to teach his grandson how to fish. 
Um, and no one disputed that. Um, inpatient team, outpatient team, the family, uh, he was fully on board. There were no cracks in that foundation. It was not one of those, oh, he puts on the good face on rounds with the team and you know, tells the family something completely different. Uh, he was 100% committed. Um, and everybody thought that he was gonna be fully adherent with a complex post-operative you know, regimen for anti-rejection medications and follow-up appointments. Um, so it's kind of that question of how far back do you go to sort of uh, tap into what his previously uh, directed wishes were. Kevin, I, I mean, I think my inclination would be that guy. I mean, the guy who had the altered mental status and was aggressive and seemed so, like his personality had changed. That's not the guy we know. That might be a different guy. Or, you know, this gets into like identity theory that I don't necessarily want to get into. But um I think my preference would be for the kind of long held wishes of the person before their, you know, mind went a little strange because of this infection. So what? let's just do the thing we think he would have wanted us to do a week ago and not a few hours ago when he had this infection and the, this altered mental status. Yeah. And I think for many um, on the care team, they weren't even able to see past his, you know, sort of candidacy for transplantation and that of all the patients on the unit, that this was the guy that they were going to have that, um, you know, heroic rescue for. Um, but this was going to be the guy they saved, right? You can't do that with all the patients, um, especially who get so critically ill on advanced heart fail failure therapies. Um, and so they almost felt, um, there, there was some on the team that I will say it sort of felt like there was even a bit of an in for a penny, in for a pound. He's went this far. Um, why not keep going a little while longer? Not to sort of put the, the, the organ in for transplant now, um, but at least get him over this hump. Uh, let's buy a little bit of time, save his life from this acute infection that means you know, it's making it so he can't breathe, and then let's figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. So similarly with that, there were those on the kind of broader interdisciplinary team that um, had lenses that were not just, well, which patient, the one of the last few hours or the last few days, um, or uh, do we sort of uh, give you all the resources because we put so much into you and you have a, such a great likelihood of a positive outcome, um, or um, do we um, ask the question about what does the family think, right? Um, so Tyler, not, not long ago, you were asking, who is this guy's people, right? bioethics for the people, y'all. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what what um, his family was saying, um, and, and not with um, a, a degree of um, complete uh, conviction on this was, well, how could we do anything but what he's telling us, right? He's saying, no more, I'm done. Mm. Isn't that the end of the road? Um, we can't go against what he's saying. And you started to pick up on, you know, dimensions of he was the patriarch in the family. He was the one everybody turned to. He was the leader of the family. And there was really this sense of, well, even if your bioethical argument about the place of most solid prior reasoning and decision-making capacity should triumph over suboptimal decision-making or incapable uh, wishes, I don't care. He's telling you, no, we can't do that. And so the family quickly rallied around a, a sort of united sense that we shouldn't, oh, um, no. that uh, we should not intubate him and in fact, maybe get some pain medications on board and make him comfortable. That is unusual. I, I'm surprised yeah. by that. Sorry, go ahead, Tyler. No, no, I was just going to say the same thing, that that's generally not the direction that um, that we see when there's these types of kind of end-of-life conflicts. Um, Kevin, th there's a term, and I, it's it's escaping me right now, 
about this idea of um, perseverance being a requirement for uh, the patients, right? One of the duties that a patient has is to be persistent um, or persevere through ad, uh, adversity, right? And, and the physician and the team and everyone has put in these resources and in order to honor those resources or, or part of the duty of the patient is to um, to persevere even if the times get tough. Are you familiar with that? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, and, and I think that when you consider um, his course to date, um, both before he went to the emergency room and was hospitalized, um, as well as that kind of three week uh, plus now course, you know, of him coming off the ventilator and then getting this infection, been about a month, he'd shown remarkable persistence, right? Um, and sort of affirming the fact that he's somebody who we should put some resources into, right? He's not somebody we're wasting our time, wasting our resources, could potentially waste that incredible resource of a solid, you know, a solid organ for transplants and especially a heart. Um, but of course, of late, um, starting to trend in um, a different direction that way. So um, again, it's how far back do you go to sort of see, does he have it in him to be a good candidate long-term for the scarce medical resource? Um, or um, is it something different? And maybe this is a sign of what would come um, uh, one week post-op, a month post-op, et cetera. Hmm. Had we had conversations, we, I'm on the team now, did we have prior conversations <laughs> with the family about this? Because it's so unusual for a family to say, well, now he's saying he doesn't want it, so we can't do it. Were there, have they been much involved before this point? Do they understand that the infection is causing his altered mental status? Yeah, and this is where uh, the, the sort of sense for the team, and it's, you know, can be sometimes hard, Devin, now that you're on the team, I'm going to pick on you, right? <laughs> like, how much do you get the involvement um, of the family in all this? You know, sort of what was relayed to me is that they'd seem like a pretty involved family, but, well, let's just say they're not the ones to be asking as many questions as some other families on rounds. Um, and, you know, we have had wonderments about whether or not they have a full appreciation of the situation he's in. Um, and a sort of sense of they were so involved um, that they were starting to demonstrate some signs of, you know, caregiver fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially for a prolonged hospitalized patient with a pretty rough go of late requiring, um, you know, advanced heart failure therapy, a couple of VADs and ICU care. And was the family starting to show signs of like an ICU, um, you know, caregiver shock, you know, type situation. Um, and so, uh, the team was a little bit concerned that the family didn't quite get it, but also there are places I hear that, um, maybe not from you, Devin, right, but some of your colleagues on the care team of, well, is that coming from a place of a value judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Are we, you know, sort of discounting the contributions of family, the ability for um, uh, non-clinical lay folks to understand complex information? You know, I'm not sure, but I always, as an ethicist, am, am a little bit guarded in those situations that the team's reports on how much a patient or family understands um, is as accurate as may be portrayed. Mm, that's a good point, Kevin. So I think, you know, this is where we kind of give a bit to the Tyler rubber meets the road of the case. Um, and, you know, what we have, uh, essentially saw was, uh, despite my best attempts to kind of uh, talk at a high level about, you know, the sort of dynamics of this case with this ICU doctor, um, is no, we don't have time to do the normal ethics consult thing, kind of unpacking and situating all these different pieces against one another. I need to know if I'm going to intubate this man in the next hour or not. I don't have more than that. More than that, um, and he's no longer with us. 
Um, so what are we going to do? And uh, as I decided, well, maybe I can um, help out a little bit, maybe talk to the family. Um, I didn't live far from the hospital, could maybe be there in about 15, 20 minutes. It was relayed to me that, oh, by the way, uh, we called risk management um, and they said, if the family's in agreement, make him DNR. So with that, that gave me um, a, a time to think through that risk manager's reported um, opinion as I headed to the hospital to come meet with uh, this family. Risk. I'm shaking my fist. <laughs> Are you waving a proverbial hand there, Devin? De Devin loves risk managers. I actually usually do, but every now and again, I, I question why the team goes to risk first rather than ethics and, and not as like sort of a team building. Like risk and ethics should be on board together, should be consulted together and not as separate entities because uh, I think teams are more likely to listen to risk. And then if ethics has something else to say that might be contrary to what risk has to say, risk is seen more as like the legal department and therefore you have to do what risk says. Or at least I've been on some teams that feel that way. Yeah. And somewhere in some pillow universe, there's a risk management for the people podcast talking about clinical ethics. Why do they always call <laughs> clinical ethics first? If only we could be consulted together. No, I'm sure many ethicists concur with yeah, that. Maybe. and. Uh, can create strange bedfellows, especially in a tough uh, situation like this. I, I found risk management to be generally very, very helpful. When they're not helpful, or when I find them less helpful is when the team will call either risk or ethics and not like the recommendations that are provided. And then they'll go to the other one and try to get a different answer. That's where it's particularly troublesome, I think. But... Shopping for a concurring opinion? No way. Yeah, no way. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that if we're kind of ripping off that a little bit is that I've always found helpful is not asking a non-clinical service for recommendations about how to provide clinical care, like should we intubate him or not, but how do we manage the risk in this situation if we were to identify on balance that he needed to be intubated? Uh, how do we manage the risk in that situation from a documentation standpoint, from a communication with family? Um, and that I've always found can be a lot more helpful to sort of right-size the contribution of some of our partners into the care plan without it being sort of we're practicing medicine from um, a legal pulpit. All right, so you're driving to the hospital. I assume it's the middle of the night, which is the best time to be driving. Driving to the hospital in the middle of the night. I show up in my PJs, Devin. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> somehow find a shirt and tie. Um, and, you know, quickly, uh, both have an interdisciplinary team huddle um, followed immediately by meeting with the family. And, you know, one of the things that I came up with on that drive to the hospital was, you know, thinking about um, the sort of ethics and the risk, you know, of this situation, you know, in addition to <laughs> clinical psychosocial for this man um, and the tough time he's going through is, well, I could see how it might be risky if you go ahead and put an endotracheal tube down this man's throat and put him on a ventilator, if all of the family is saying no. Um, however, what if this is a case of, I had no idea what happened at two o'clock in the morning and you tell me he had a good prognosis that you thought you could save him and then you let us allow him to die in the middle of the night. Could that potentially be a risky situation, you know, in terms of uh, kind of reversing the tables. It's not a case of, you know, medical uh, assault or battery with an unconsented touching um, by uh, placing him on the ventilator without consent. But this, you should have rescued him. He was clear about what he wanted. And we were just in turmoil, um, not understanding the situation. 
Um, and so, you know, we had a little quick conversation on the team about if that was something that we should worry about from a risk perspective, which the response was a wholehearted, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty, that could be pretty worrisome. So we had that interdisciplinary discussion and then the plan to go meet with family. And, you know, here's where this case really haunts me is because I, I went into that discussion, um, you know, maybe with the thought of having a cape um, around my neck, uh, hanging back over my shoulders, um, and I could come in and explain what the team put it. Um, there is a thing such as decision-making capacity, and while people might still be able to articulate treatment preferences, they might not be able to do things that folks like Applebaum and Grisso recount in seminal journal articles, and um, you know, can reason, can appreciate the situation, can manipulate information, have insight, all these different things. Oh, and your thought, clinical ethics voice is extraordinary, by the way. Yeah. I love that. I hope you use that voice in every family meeting that you've <laughs> ever had because it is it is like, mwah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's the same voice I read to my kids at night, Devin. So love I don't it. know if kind of <laughs> overlapping Venn diagram that, uh, that shares. So I really thought, and here I'm just, you know, being as honest as I can, I thought I could go in and uh, diffuse this conflict, that the team must have been going in, you know, clinical guns a-blazing, uh, not slowing down, not explaining the situation. And I thought that I could just harness some of those clinical ethics, soft skills, slow down, explain things clearly. Um, and it was just going nowhere. I mean, it was that um, classic, you know, case of, the broken record, no. Um, everything that I could try to bring up to try to have a different way of looking at this, the family just was starting to meet with pretty heavy resistance, which was a surprise to me so soon after um, you know, his change in status. This felt to me like a family that had been fighting the team for weeks, um, but really just over the last few hours. And I tried as I may, tried to be clear, but ultimately it was a situation that I was clear that this man was gonna be intubated it was going to be the against the expressed wishes of this family. And that's when my heart really started racing. It wasn't with the 2 a.m. page. It wasn't with driving to the hospital, but it was with, oh, my gosh, this is going to be one of those situations that we are providing a, a potentially thinking about providing an intervention against the stated wishes of the decision maker. And that started to really get my heart racing. Yeah, those are really hard when... Even if we think that the patient, the person making the decision, whether it's the patient or the family, even if we think that they have like the best intentions, sometimes if they're making decisions that are so diametrically opposite to what the, the general consensus of the medical team thinks that they ought to be doing, that, that can be so challenging. Um, had you met the family prior to this middle of the night no, no. I mean, I uh, hadn't even heard of this patient in his situation um, before that 2 a.m. page. Um, given that he was starting to say things like, um, I'm done, no, 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 I, I think it could have potentially been a page the next morning for a kind of ethics palliative care duo, right? Uh, we've got this situation, we've put a lot of resources in, market change, but not this sort of pressingly acute, do we intubate him in the next hour or not? So. No, uh, our service was completely uh, foreign to this man and this team's mm -hmm. clinical situation. Well, Kevin, why did you decide that he needed to be intubated against their wishes? Well, I mean, I think at, at that point, I, I didn't make that decision, but I was thinking the way the ethics were lining up to me in my head, that one could make a pretty strong 
plausible argument that that was the right thing to do. Um, I sort of was trained in the breed of ethicists that um, our consultation is advisory, um, that ultimately, um, you know, I needed to lay this out um, for the team and what I'm, you know, seeing and um, analyzing, understanding, but ultimately it's their call. Um, and if, for instance, they feel that that first risk management opinion, you know, was binding, um, that, uh, you know, if the whole family is in agreement, he should be made DNR, well, um, ultimately, I did the best I could to meet the family, meet the team, explain the situation, um, uh, and make recommendations, but not to be the decision maker per se. And maybe that's a distinction with the difference. That's not what you were saying, but like your strongly worded ethics recommendation, Kevin. Yeah. No, we we see that all the time though. Is when you know people call uh, call clinical ethics and have a, an opinion or have a position that they want us to go and and effectuate, right? Accomplish whether it's a DNR code status change or convince the family that the patient is dying or something like that. We get, you know, kind of operationalized. I mean, there's that, there's that pressure a lot, I think. Yeah, no, I, I've certainly seen that occur a few times. So, you know, I, I, the, the way I was understanding it um, was that, you know, this was a situation where um, we had not only the family in agreement, um, but one of the family members happened to be the person who was appointed in his advanced directive. Um, in Oregon, we call that the healthcare representative. In other places, DPOA or DPOA for HC or you know whatever POA. Um, but you know, the legal decision maker, he was the one that was appointed by the patient and a valid instrument. Um, is that um, ultimately this decision maker um, and this family? Um, were appealing for their decision, right, which was don't intubate him. Let's, you know, start making him more comfortable. Um, they were appealing to justification that was not ethically sound. And if you remember what they were saying was that it's what he's saying right now, right? Like, why should we not intubate him? Is because that's what he's telling us to do. And so from that standpoint, I think that we could see if we had a whiteboard and did a little bit of arrows and numbers and, and whatnot, we have some circularity. So the very reason returning to the family and turning to uh, his, uh, his person appointed in the advanced directive was because the patient was felt to not be demonstrating decision-making capacity. And that was a finding that was concurred by the attending physician, the consulting cardiologist uh, in the hospital who I guess was still around late into the evening, um, and somebody they got to come by, a psych fellow or psych resident, uh, some kind of psych consult liaison person, all concurred that he lacked capacity. But it was that very reason why the team was turning to the family, right? Turning to his um, decision maker in the advanced directive. Um, and they were pointing us back to what he was saying, right? Not what he was saying a month ago, not what he was saying a year ago, but what he was saying actively. Um, so in my mind, they were doing the best that they could. They were trying to be faithful surrogates, faithful family members, but they were breaching a sort of invaluable rule around surrogate decision-making that you need to appeal to uh, core um, uh, criteria that have some pretty wide ethical and legal agreement, namely what the patient has said previously at a time of capacity that's applicable in the circumstances, what we think a patient would say um, if they had capacity in light of all the medical information available or failing that in a best interest judgment. 
And they were doing neither of those three. They were saying what he is actively saying now, um, which sort of for me uh, made them more of the species of the inappropriate surrogate, um, not the surrogate who's directing in good faith and we should summarily follow their wishes. Hmm. That's a really nuanced, like delicate point, I think. I mean, it's something that we're pretty familiar with as, as ethicists, but I think most family members who are kind of thrust into that role, I don't know if they'll, that that's really something that makes a lot of sense in the moment. You know, in presenting this case, um, not long after to some colleagues, um, a very respected colleague told me, well, it's because they were incapable. Um, the surrogates lacked decision-making capacity. And, and I thought about that for a moment, but that didn't seem to me what they were doing, um, because I think even though they kind of were demonstrating the seriousness of the situation, some of that caregiver fatigue, um, they seemed to understand what was going on. They could hear that he is sick now. We have a way to save him. It involves a tube down his throat. We don't think he'd need it long. Um, might even be able to extubate him tomorrow uh, once we kind of get some new antibiotics on board and stabilize him. Um, and they were able to get the overall prognosis that he still had a good chance of surviving this. Um, nothing had changed his likelihood of, again, remember UNOS 1A you know, criteria, he was top of the list. Uh, they were able to understand all that and yet not agreeing with the decision to intubate him. Um, so I actually disagreed with this pretty uh, respected colleague um, about surrogate incapacity. I think theoretically that is something we should be mindful of as ethicists, but really in my mind, they were appealing to an inappropriate criterion uh, to make their judgment not incapable per se. All right, so you exp you have this incredible paternalism. You say, they're not doing it the right way. <laughs> Love it, Kevin. They're not doing it right. Uh, okay, did the medical team follow your advice then or your recommendation? Yeah, so at that point, I basically explained, you know, this is more akin to the species of somebody who, you know, is making decisions based upon inappropriate criteria like secondary gain. Um, you know, we see some of those situations, right? Not to allege motives here, this family was beautiful, they were trying to do the best, but it's more akin to that um, than that um, beloved surrogate who just is getting a little sooner than the healthcare team to a comfort care decision. No. Um, my recommendation would be, you know, if we're sort of querying if they're being a good surrogate decision maker, um, in this moment, they're not because they're, as you say, rampant paternalism, um, not um, doing it the right way. Um, and so I said, you know, from an ethical perspective, it would not be inappropriate for us to think about a few things. What else he said in his advanced directive? where he appointed one of these family members to make his decisions. He uh, articulated aggressive treatment preferences, which if you took a blind you know, faith reading of in this situation would lead you to think, keep providing ongoing aggressive treatment. He had consented to this whole bloody affair. He had went to the emergency room seeking not just help, but a transplantation and had continued on every turn to be working toward um, that goal. Um, he had even signed the initial consent form for the first left ventricular assist device. He was incapable, he was, he was intubated and sedated for the placement of the second, but he himself authorized the placement of the first, as well as this long-term, long-standing commitment um, in this direction. You know, when you pair that with the emergency situation that he's in, 
and that a reasonable person would ordinarily ask for their life to be saved if they can't ask for that life to be saved themselves leads to think that maybe we need to stabilize this man um, and figure out tomorrow with the family, where do we go from here? So that's what I laid out. Um, and whether or not the team found my argument compelling or they're still thinking about how many resources we've devoted into him and how good of a you know, uh, prognosis he still had from an overall perspective, um, they agreed and informed the family that we were going to to do this. I would say I love how you phrased the recommendation too. It would not be unethical to right. This is how for those of you who don't write ethics recommendations, there's you know like you must do this in order to comply with the law. It's something I almost never say. Um, it would be the best possible thing to do would be this, or it would be permissible to do this, or it wouldn't be unethical to do that. Like there's sort of gradations of how you write recommendations and you said it in the most like sort of vague way possible. <laughs> but I, something I appreciate is it wouldn't be unethical to go ahead and do it for these reasons. As a general rule, we have to uh, <laughs> think about that nuance, yes. But again, you know, I think that yeah. when paired with being on the unit um, and being there to kind of help, um, you know, talk to the family, manage the situation, uh, the team felt a little bit more that I, you know, stood behind that um, in ways that sometimes if someone wasn't a part of the actual uh, phone call or meeting with the team, can sometimes maybe read that language. And that's pretty wishy-washy ethics. Um, <laughs> maybe for right reason, but does that give me the comfort in moving forward in that direction? At least in this case, I was there. So you provided justification for the team to go against the, what the patient was saying, what the family was saying, and what risk management said. What risk management initially yeah. said, but initially otherwise, said. Okay. otherwise, yes, that, that's his. Okay. That's, that's the virtue of courage, Tyler. Yeah, that's, that's moral fortitude right there. Love it. You know, maybe a little persistence, right? No. Yeah. So um, we told the family, um, we said, we're going to do this. Um, here's why. Um, again, as the nicer uh, conversation earlier didn't produce any, you know, meaningful dividends on reconciling disparate opinions. Um, it was only going to worsen, right, when you said we're actually going to do that thing that we were talking about. Um, and they basically said a version of just try it um, and started to um, form a human shield. Um, between oh, the, no. and the patient and you know it uh, was kind of that take out the cell phone um, you know type moment um, and you know really kind of made folks um, nervous um, I guess would be a way of putting it lightly um, but in that moment you know what, what I said to the family um, and whether this is the right thing to say the wrong thing to say or something in between you can be the judge or the people, bioethics of the people can be the judge. Um, as I said, we're, we're gonna do this, that the team has decided to move forward in this direction uh, to save his life. Um, the team would be forced to have to um, remove, you know, those who are um, obstructing life-saving care, um, but that would make this more difficult on him. He needs his family here in this moment to comfort him, to hold his hand, um, we hope that um, this is something that you can accompany him um, through this process. Even though we know you disagree with us, please stay in here for him. Um, let us do this and we can figure the rest out in the morning. And so with that, they moved aside, um, held his hand, um, were clearly upset, clearly disagreeing, um, but the team uh, did intubate him and saved his life that night. Wow. wow. I, I really like that, Kevin. I mean, 
I suppose if you were a different kind of person that might sound manipulative, but you're such a, I know you and you're so genuine that I bet it came off as genuine, but what a good response of like, we might have to remove you, but we'd rather not do that because he needs you. Not because it, it's going to be annoying for us, not because, you know, this we're going to have to call extra security, but because he needs you and you need mm -hmm. to stay. And I guess part of me hopes that that cut through, right? I mean, I didn't know this family, you know, as Tyler pointed out, didn't know them before two o'clock in the morning when the page first went off. But even in the conversation where, you know, we were disagreeing with one another, essentially, um, you know, it was one where I think I, I was understanding them as engaging in good faith. I believe they were to me as well. I tried to be present with them, uh, make eye contact, really hear their concerns. And I think when I said that, maybe even though there was a lot of disagreement going on, that they had some trust that there was um, an actor, an ethicist in this that was trying to um, as best hold this complex situation um, as delicately as possible. At least that's what I hope. Yeah. Well, well, what happened next? I'm on pins and needles. Well, what happened next is I went home. Um, I went back to bed and knew that I was going to be in meetings all day about this situation with um, risk managers, hospital administrators, with the team, with the family, and that did come to pass. I think even two and a half hours with the family alone was part of what the next day um, held. Um, but ultimately, uh, the team was remarkably uh, prescient on their prognosis. Um, they actually said in the middle of the night when this page first came up, we might be able to extubate him tomorrow, like tomorrow afternoon. By three o'clock in the afternoon, he was extubated. Um, which was a remarkably, you know, quick turnaround. Um, and, you know, while the family was very upset the next morning, um, they sort of, you know, eventually came around. Um, and it actually wasn't that long after, just a few weeks after um, that the patient did, um, uh, an organ came up that was suitable for his habitus and blood type and everything. Um, and he successfully had a heart transplant. Wow. Um, so um, his... Long term, I think maybe did consist of those things like he had hoped his own goals, right? Not my goals, not the team's goals, but his goals of being able to get out of the hospital and teach his grandson how to fish. Wow, what a, what an adventure that one was at two o'clock in the morning. So do you think you did the right thing? God, Devin, you know, I, I go back to this whole, <laughs> like maybe an ethicist with a few hundred more, a couple thousand more consults, you know, as my career has continued, could have slowed down in a different way, explained things differently with the family. I, I still, I always think about, I could have done better um, with that family. I, 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 I tried my even best, um, my level best in that situation and was not able to uh, sort of bridge those, you know, divides between where the team was and the sort of clinical ethics um, analysis and where they were. Um, so, I mean, I think that given my flaws, given my inadequacies and being unable to bridge that divide, um, I think the decision to intubate him was the right one. Um, I do stand by that today and always feel that if you can consult in a way that if you're ever sued and put on, you know, a trial for um, your ethics consultation alongside the team and others, you know, at least do it for the right reason so that you can get up and in front of your colleagues in a podcast like this um, and have at least that confidence that you did it uh, for the right reasons. I do feel that. But man, that haunting bit um, is, is still still there today about 
um, how could I have helped be for the family what they needed in that moment and not have to grab the paternalistic reins um, and uh, get the horse back in the barn. So right. you want to hear something interesting from that one that I another kind of interesting takeaway? Yes. Yeah. I went to talk to the patient after his transplant and he didn't remember me and I didn't feel it was my job to sort of describe to him um, why it was that I was here. You know, you all saved of that. his life. <laughs> omitted that one. Um, but I did ask, boy, you know, what a long, you know, hospital course you've had. You know, what do you remember from all this? That was the closest I got to. Do you remember that, you know? Um, red hair that night who I came in and dealt with the situation. And he said, you know, the thing that I remember when I woke up after my transplantation was um, I remembered, and this is so funny. I remember being back in the room with the fishes, he said. The room with the fishes. Did anybody check his mental status kind of before, you know, operation or afterward? And he was really talking about when he was back on the cardiology floor, remember right after he was admitted. Uh, there was the cardiology floor had fish tanks in it, kind of like built into the walls. And he was remembering way back to the beginning of his admission. He basically, upon one further follow-up question, didn't remember anything of being in the ICU. He didn't remember his <laughs> wow. dad, his follow-up. Um, so he didn't remember that night. Mm. Uh, and it's always a reminder of what we don't know about ICU delirium and what we don't know about altered mental status and acute illness. Doesn't mean that we should... Uh, channel our um, paternalistic selves, but it does mean um, it means something. I'll let you be the judge of that. That's uh, that's an inch, that really good reminder, right? That um, you know, it's really hard to know what's going on in not only just in the patient's mind, but in the mind of that family. I mean, I I wonder if that has precipitated some interesting conversations, or if it's an episode in their family life that they don't talk about very much. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a great question. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thanks for being a hero. Yes. <laughs> thanks for, for wielding your paternalism in such a useful way. <laughs> you know, I've got that one a lot, Tyler, but Devin, yeah, never the hero one. I'll have to write that down in my uh, Holly Hobby notebook <laughs> or something. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm -hmm.